This is NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Glenn Weldon. To be a whistleblower is more than an act of individual courage, though it certainly is that. It's also a rejection of one's own complicity in the status quo. It's an act of radical hope, a belief in the future, and in the possibility that systems can change for the better. What drives someone to make such a lonely, risky, life-changing decision? Frances Haugen knows she was a Facebook employee who went public with her claim that the social media company had changed what its users saw in ways that drove and rewarded misinformation and that ignited violence. In her new book, The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook, she details the life experiences that turned her into someone with the moral clarity to call out the harm she saw at work every day. She talked to host Robin Young of NPR's Here and Now. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Frances Haugen is the Facebook whistleblower who used more than 20,000 pages of documents to back her claim that the world's biggest social media company knew it had changed its algorithms to reward extremism, refused to fix it even as Facebook was being used to ignite violence and spread lies, ignored their own research on children's mental health, and at some points blamed the users themselves. This has all been widely reported. She sat in the First Lady's box in January's State of the Union to receive applause and thanks for stepping forward. But likely you don't know how Frances found the strength to do that. Her new memoir is The Power of One, How I Found the Strength to Tell the Truth and Why I Blew the Whistle on Facebook. And Frances Haugen joins us now. Welcome and congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, and I have to say, I did not expect to shed some tears in this reading. Oh. But you lay out this roadmap of things that happened to you that you feel added up to the woman, the whistleblower you became. So let's start at the beginning. Brilliant little girl in Iowa, but hard to make friends. Then along comes Tina, invites you into her circle. You grew up together. You were on the debate teams together. You were fundraising for the team, selling snacks. She left early. Her car is hit by a truck, and she's killed. I mean, oof, so sorry. Yeah, it, it um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, when she died, um, I, I, I took her spot. You know, I got bumped up. You know, there's these conspiracy theories about how could I have been so eloquent at my Senate testimony. I got bumped up. I got to travel around the United States my senior year. Uh, you know, that was one of those pivotal moments where you wonder, was my life changed in some way? That's a beautiful thought you come to that, you know, you, you saw this as a burden first and it un- made you uncomfortable, but then you saw it as her hand lifting you up. And she's just one of the people and one of the landmarks along the way that you credit. Um, this book is going to thrill techies with its, all its talk about learning to write code and algorithms and the stuff that had my head spinning. But I want to stay with these personal revelations. You went to the brand new and unaccredited then Olin College for Engineering 
You took classes also at Wellesley. You got accepted to Harvard's business school, but it was a deferred admission, so you went to work first at Google, then back to Harvard. What did that chapter mm. add to the, you know, the bricks and the foundation that Tina gave you? Well, you know, part of why I went to Olin was they encouraged us to take a lot more humanities classes. Civil disobedience. Um, yeah, my minor was in Cold War studies, and my thesis was around civil disobedience against civil defense. Right. And at Harvard, I just want to note, uh, you watched as a group of other women did a mic drop with some of the nasty boys in the back of the room who yeah. were <laughs> mocking them. And you said, oh, OK, that, we can do that. I tried to solve these problems alone. And I watched a group of women in my class say, no, 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 we together are going to set a standard of no, this is not acceptable. Yeah. And they succeeded. And a big part of my book is about often it's not about solving solutions one by one. It's about how do we together to change the incentives, change how systems operate. All right. Well, let's skip ahead. Uh, you took a trip with your then-husband to Cambodia. You walked through the killing fields. This is bones piled high, the aftermath of the ethnic violence and genocide that claimed nearly two million lives. This inspired you to learn more about that horrible time in history and had a big impact on you when you got to Facebook. Yeah. When I appeared at Facebook, I found out I was going to work on misinformation everywhere in the world that didn't have third-party fact-checking. The UN had come out and said, Facebook is responsible for this, this genocide that happened in Myanmar, that the junta there used fake accounts that they built huge audiences around so they'd have ways of broadcasting um, misinformation about Muslims in the country so that when they lit the match they had something to fan the flames with. And so I think that combination of that I had already had that context before I showed up, it meant that as I watched it play outside of Facebook, it wasn't an abstraction. It was like, oh, no, we are repeating many of the similar playbooks as yeah. before. Well, and that would happen in different ways during your time at Facebook. But moving on, your marriage ends. Your then-husband realizes he is gay. It's part of the journey. Then illness you get sicker and sicker. You you have celiac disease. Mm-hmm. Yep. I did not get diagnosed until I was in my mid-20s. And it meant that at my first low point, my ankles were so weak because I was malnourished and I didn't even know it, that you know I'd get sprained ankle after sprained ankle. But by my mid-20s, we thought we had figured it out. You know, don't eat wheat. You'll be fine. But it turned out that because the allergy labels in the cafe at Google in San Francisco had a had a, a problem of being fairly regularly wrong. Mm. Um, it meant that by the time uh, I ended up in the hospital, I had gained almost 100 pounds, and yet they say, you're so malnourished, your muscles can't heal themselves. And so I went from being able to ride a bike for 125 miles in a day to being in a wheelchair in two and a half years. Yeah. People have a lot of reasons why they can't follow their hearts. Yeah. You know, that, you know, they're afraid they're under the loan. They're afraid they'll lose their jobs. They're afraid they'll lose all their money, you know, on and on and on. And I lived through basically all of those fears simultaneously in my late 20s. But it meant that when I ended up facing down what I faced at Facebook, you know, I'd already rebuilt my life almost entirely from scratch once. The thing that I think people forget is that we have amazing strength within us. Well, let's talk about being the Facebook whistleblower. You're at Facebook. You're working in this misinformation division. There's all sorts of different subchapters, but you realize at a certain point, wow, I think that job was open because it, nobody really wants it because you really can't screen out all of these insidious actors who have taken over. Well, 
information. You know, they assigned me a mentor when I first joined Facebook. And he immediately tells me, this is a bad project. This is a bad problem to work on. And I'm like, how is that possible? Like, this is the circumstances that are, are leading to, to genocides, like to ethnic violence. But, you know, if I had been able to distance myself from it, the reason he thought that was a bad problem was only problems that could be easily measured were good problems at Facebook. And at Facebook, nothing was false unless a third-party fact-checker said it was false. So by definition, no misinformation my team touched could actually be misinformation. Right. We see through you how this becomes a little like that scene in um, Fantasia with Mickey Mouse (laughs) and the brooms that are splitting. You can have a thousand fact-checkers and you're still only yeah. fact-checking 50,000 things out of a billion. And yet everyone you try to talk to about it, you're getting gaslit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's very specific shards of things that you mm. concluded. That Facebook ignored things like algorithms that amplified mm. extremist voices. They sent users unsolicited links to posts that provided mm. fake and inflammatory information through some of the automatic you know, systems, ignored research about mm. damaging effect on kids. You're walking around with this. Mm-hmm. So if you divide all the content on Facebook into content you consented to, you say, I want that content, and content you didn't consent to. Uh, someone invited you to a group you know, for Stop the Steal. And if you wrote a comment like, this is misinformation, they made you a member of that group. It's engagement. It all drives it up. Mm-hmm. You know, if they just give priority to the stuff that you said, I want this, you get less hate speech, less violence, and less nudity. Right. Do you think, by the way, it is fixable? I do. The problem is with the current system of incentives, where we only have to report profit and loss, there's no incentive to use those other tools. Every time you leave a like, a comment, a reshare, you incentivize other people to produce more content. And if you don't view content, you don't click on ads. You don't view ads. You were charged with doing a lot of this research for other countries. And did I read correctly that you weren't even completely aware of what was happening in this country until January 6th? So a huge part of why I came forward was Facebook dissolved the civic integrity team right after the 2020 election. When the insurrectionists started organizing on Facebook, there wasn't any single person who was now responsible for making sure Facebook was a, a positive force in society. But it was only after January 6th that they started turning back on the safety measures that were on for the U.S. 2020 election. You describe when it started to get too much, you actually had an, you know panic attacks. You carefully describe in this book all the bricks that went into the foundation of the person who became the whistleblower. But is there also a point where it was physically impossible not to do something. At the time that I came forward, there were maybe 300 or 400 people in the world that really understood how Facebook's algorithms work. Most of those people are data scientists and engineers. You know, they might not feel confident that they could explain it to an average person. My job at Facebook was to be an interface, like translators for lawyers. You know, the decision I I felt I had to make was Let's say only 20 or 30 people out of that 300 or 400 people are in the same bucket that I'm in. If you thought a life was on the line and only 20 people could save it, would you act? What about if it was a thousand? Mm. What if it was a million? I would think anyone would sit and think longer about that. I happen to be the little intersecting corner of the, the Venn diagram where I had the opportunity and the skills And I'd had the life experiences to know that there are things that matter more than 
being wildly successful in Silicon Valley? Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, a huge relief of having finally blown that whistle. But, I mean, are, are we out of the woods here? So, I want to be real clear. We have still not passed any major laws since I came forward in the United States. We need to pass laws that say, hey, you can't hide from us anymore. You have to engage in conversation because that's how we're going to figure out how to design social media that brings out the best in us. Frances Haugen, her new memoir is The Power of One. It's coming out June 13th. Frances, thanks so much for talking to us about it. Thank you for inviting me. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.